We've got, uh, so we've been going through the sermon series, What Would You Ask Jesus? And uh, <clears throat> I'm more than happy to answer some of your individual questions that you might have uh, when that question is asked of you. Uh, but I've been selecting the topics primarily from the research that's been done in the last decade as far as the most significant challenges and struggles and barriers to faith that people have, the reasons that they claim are why they might walk away from the faith for a season of their lives or perhaps even permanently walk away from Jesus. And uh, today, I've got a, a, another fact for you. It turns out that students in the age group uh, 13 to 18 gave the following reason why they didn't think church was important. Uh, and we're actually going to hit, uh, I think, maybe four or five of these statements uh, kind of thematically. Uh, they're all a little bit connected on this issue. And so 59% say that the church is not relevant to me. All right? And so this is uh, absolutely a concern, right? If we don't think something is relevant, if we don't think something's important, uh, it's going to be harder to convince ourselves uh, to participate in it at any given time. So the, this is the question we're asking Jesus today. Why does the church seem irrelevant to me? And I think that uh, regardless of our generation, regardless of what we go through, it's likely we've all had at least seasons of our lives where we just don't have the motivation uh, to participate, the motivation to uh, pursue, to, to read the Bible, to spend time in prayer, to worship the Lord, uh, or to gather together with believers. Uh, but when it comes to the question of relevance, uh, this requires us to be able to accurately identify what is significant, what is relevant, what is important to our lives. And I want to suggest that we have, as humans, we aren't good at determining what is significant or relevant across the board. Uh, think about, uh, maybe this is a weird activity, but think about uh, the, the times in your life, the seasons of your life where you were maybe excited or passionate about something, and now looking back, you're just like, what was I, what was I thinking? Right? Like maybe, maybe you, your basement is full of a pile of things that were attributed to an old hobby that you had that maybe you've spent a lot of money on, and now you're just like, I don't, I'm not even interested in that anymore. Like, what, why was I so invested in that? All right, this is a little bit more controversial, but think about past relationships maybe that you've had where you at one point might have thought that person was the most important in the world and against the wisdom of your friends or your parents or right, other people around you, they're like, what are you doing? Right, and you're like, no, no, this is the one. Right, and we're so excited. And so when we think about exes like nowadays, like, it's like, what was I what was I thinking is perhaps, right, where you would be at. Or consider uh, careers that you've pursued and, and left where you're like, that was so unfulfilling to me and I was chasing after something that didn't produce the meaning I thought it would, right? Like it was momentarily pleasurable. It was affirming to who I was. I was able to, right, do that job well and everyone was maybe pushing me in that direction, but then I eventually walk away from it. It's like, what? That didn't do the thing that I wanted it to. Or right, think of, of just like bad investments that we've made, whether with our time, energy, money, right? Whatever resources they are that we thought were a wonderful idea and we, cho we chose poorly uh, when it came 
to those things. And so I want to suggest that we as humans don't do a good job in general when it comes to identifying things that are important in our lives. And I would even suggest that 10 years from now, <coughs> there will be things that you're doing today that you'll be like, what was I thinking? Right? Why was I so caught up in that particular thing? Why was I so dedicated to this particular thing that is now perceived by me to be irrelevant or meaningless? Uh, but don't worry, that's not just a problem with you or me or this generation. This is a problem that humans have had since the beginning of time, okay? Uh, so consider Eve in Genesis chapter 3, verse 4. Uh, the enemy is speaking to Eve, and the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, right, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. <clears throat> and then he brings into question God's character. He says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And right, that is alluring and appealing to you and I, that we could be the God of our own lives, that we would be in charge of, of every decision, that we could be the, the captain of our future, right? That we could define what is right for us and that we would be able to pursue those things with all of our hearts. And so when the woman, verse 6, check this out, notice all of the signals coming into her, right? And she's like, this is what I need in my life right now, right? This is what's really important to me. And notice what she surrenders as a result. So the, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, right? Something that's going to satisfy and fill her needs. And that the tree, uh, it was a delight to the eyes. It just, it's like, that's what I want for me right now. Like, this is uh, a delight to my eyes. It brings me just pleasure to, to look at. And that the tree was desired to make one wise. That something about Eve's own ego was going to be satisfied by doing the thing that God had told her and her husband not to do, that it's like, this is going to be the thing that's going to meet every need that I'm lacking in my life right now, that I'm going to be made wise. And so she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And so it's difficult to tell whether just Adam was just like kind of standing around dumbfounded, I, I don't know. Uh, but nonetheless, they chose to rebel against God when they experienced all of these signals coming into them, that they determined for themselves what was significant and relevant and important. John MacArthur is quoted as saying this. He says, Satan continues his efforts to make sin less offensive, heaven less appealing, hell less horrific, and the gospel less urgent. Right? And this has been a strategy that he's used for humans since the beginning. Like when we believe those things, we are literally falling for the oldest lie in the book. All right? And so recall other events throughout human history written in biblical history, right? Never mind just our own past experiences and poor choices, but even think about someone like the author of Ecclesiastes who was equipped with numerous resources, incredible wealth and riches, and spent perhaps decades of his life and resources pursuing these things that he thought would fulfill him, things that he deemed to be relevant. And those things were things such as, right, uh, working hard, right, looking after, looking to pursue money or, or women or, or wealth or, or drinking, right, all of these things that he thought would satisfy his needs. 
And he had the resources to chase after it far more effective than you or I are able to. And every one of those things, he ended up saying, all of these things are vain, they're meaningless, they're useless, it's grasping for the wind. I thought it was going to satisfy me and it failed me miserably. And so I just want to point out that we fail to accurately identify the things that are going to be most fruitful, most beneficial, produce the most flourishing in our own lives. And unfortunately, we will spend decades of our lives chasing after them before we find out that they are wanting. Or consider this, the rich young ruler who encounters Jesus, and Jesus himself invites this man to follow him. Right? Jesus himself, Jesus, God in the flesh, walking on the earth, is like, hey, you could have relationship with me. You could hang out with me every day. I've got ministry that I'm inviting you to be a part of. And that man, in his assessment, was like, I'd rather keep my authority. I'd rather keep my riches. I'd rather keep my life where I'm in charge than choose the God of the universe inviting me to relationship right now. And that man walked away weeping, grieved at this dilemma he faced, and he chose to reject the Son of God in that moment. And I, and I don't know if he then later heard of Jesus being raised from the dead. I don't know if this man later became a follower of Jesus. I don't know where he stands today on the other side of eternity. But I imagine if that moment is brought clear to him, he regrets at least that season of his life or that choice that he made that may have lasted until his death. He chose poorly. And Jesus, when describing our lives and the choices that we make, Jesus doesn't pull punches. He calls living a life, right, uh, after our own thoughts, our own desires, our own hearts, is going to be foolish, Right? Like we as humans, we're content living a life that's maybe like sinful if we think it's going to make us happier. But we don't want to be fools. But that's what Jesus calls it. He says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 26, and everyone who hears these words of mine, Jesus, that is, right, and does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the wind blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And so Jesus is suggesting that when we live our lives ignoring his words, ignoring the scriptures, ignoring the words of truth and life that are meant to bring about fruit in us, bring us joy as we obediently follow after him, when we neglect those things, we're building our life and our kingdom on things that will not last and will eventually crumble and disappoint us. And he doesn't say, like, hey, you shouldn't have done that, like, you know, because it was the wrong thing to do. He's saying you shouldn't have done that because it's the foolish thing to do. And we've, we've all been there, right? And if you've lived long enough, you've experienced those moments where your life or parts of it have collapsed, and great was that fall. And so, so here's one of the questions we're considering, like, why, why should I pursue being in a church if it seems so irrelevant, right? And some of the reasons that some people might give as answers to justify their their choices, another one is this. 48% of people in this age group say that I I can find God elsewhere. All right, that's what they, they claim. I can find God 
elsewhere. For instance, some people might say, uh, hey, you know what? Nature is my God. I, I can just go out and, and paddle in a kayak. I can go out and hike in the woods, or I can go out and hunt, right? I can go out and just be in God's creation, and that's, and that's how I have chosen to, to worship the Creator. That's how I have chosen to experience relationship with God. And through nature, we can find a portion of who God is, not all of who He is. It's sufficient to uh, point to the fact that a Creator exists. It's sufficient to point to the fact that we are accountable to a God of the universe, but it is insufficient to have a meaningful relationship with God that He invites us to. In Romans chapter 1, verse 19, Paul says this, for what can, be made, uh, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. He's talking about people who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness, okay? He says, for his, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. And so you can find a part of who God is in his creation, right? When looking at the very things he's made, right, the creation that he's made, whether it's, right, in the cosmos or in a cell, right, you can look at that and find out something about God that is wonderful, about his power and the fact that this divine creator exists. But it's insufficient to have relationship with him, Right? And I've, I've made this analogy before. It'd be a shame for those of us who are married to only know our spouse through maybe, you know, some high school project that they made that you found in the attic. Right? Like, you're not going to be like, I'm going to ignore relationship with my spouse in the house, and I'm just going to hang out in the attic and read, you know, through their old art journal. Right? Like, you can learn some things about your spouse that way, but it's not the same as having a relationship with them where you can talk to them face to face. And that's what God invites us to. Some people would argue that, like, hey, I can find God on my own. Like, I can read the Bible, right? Like, I've got the scriptures. Like, I can discover who God is and what his will is for me by myself. I don't need other believers. And yes, you can discover who God is in his word. That he's revealed himself through his word. It's, it's through his word that we can, uh, that our, our hearts and our motives and the intents that we have are completely exposed, right? Where our soul and spirit can be divided by the very living word of God. It can identify the things in us that are off and the areas in us that he wants us to be more fruitful, right? It's, it's a way in which he'll, he'll prune away the things in us that are not bearing fruit and, and bring about life in us. So yes, the word of God is the means by which we can accurately assess what's valuable and, and relevant in our lives. It can be the means by which we weigh our own feelings, our own perceptions of reality, and our own uh, direction that we even feel God might be leading us to. But we still have this incredible need to, to know God beyond that in community with one another. But let me, let me suggest this first. Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 3. So we can know God through his word. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he 
also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And so in the past, right, God has revealed himself through the prophets, through the scriptures, through the Psalms, through his law, right, that we can discover who he is. And we live in uh, the last days in which God has perfectly revealed himself in his son Jesus, that we can know the heart and attitude that God has for us, that we can know his will for our lives, that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God in all of these things. And so we can know Jesus. We can know our creator. We don't have to guess at who he is or what he thinks. We can truly know who he is. And so apart from church, like spending time in the word and prayer and fasting, you can discover who God is. But if you are looking in his word, if you are reading his word as though they are the words of truth and life, you'll find that the same Jesus, the same God that you're seeking, also desires his primary means to reach this world with his kingdom, with his hope, is through the family of believers, through his church. That the primary means through which he intends you and I to grow and be encouraged and to be stirred up towards love and good works is found in the lives of the people that you're sitting with right now. Right? This is incredible. Like the Jesus that you would claim you could discover and experience on your own in his word would also teach you in his word. Go and be a part of the family that I've made for you. Right? Jesus, you'll discover, has a great love for you. But he also has a great love for his church, right? For the body of believers. He, uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Uh, I'm going to read through this quickly. Here we go. So Paul is writing about marriage in one regard, but paralleling it to the way that Jesus feels about his church. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. And so, point taken, right? Challenge for husbands, but, but more than that, Christ loves his church. Christ gave up his life for the body of believers. Christ desires to sanctify his church, cleanse his church through the washing of the water with the word, right? This is how Jesus feels about his church. He is willing to die for his church. And so if we are going to try to independently as a rogue Christian just have this relationship with God, just us and him, we'll discover that that Jesus we love also loves his church. He hasn't abandoned or divorced her. And so verse 27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Right, that Jesus is invested in his church, working and producing in us, knitting us together in love, right, desiring us to walk in greater unity with one another, that we would overcome and be sanctified and become more like him in every expression and way, that we would write all of the offenses and uh, inconsiderate ways that we treat other people would be pruned away and that we would have this love and beauty that is radiant to the world around us, just as Jesus is the radiant image of the glory of God that we, the body of believers, not just our church, but the body of believers would be communicating the, the hope to this world, the love of God, that they would see that the way we treat one another is different 
than the rest of the world. Verse 28, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And so Christ's attitude towards the church is that he's investing and nourishing and and valuing, deeming as precious, right, cherishing his church, right? That if we are to try to live our lives independent of a family of believers, we will find ourselves sapped and drained and fatigued frequently. And God intends for you to be able to be rejuvenated in the family of believers, Right? God intends on you experiencing nourishment when you gather with one another. Therefore, verse 31, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And so I want to point this out. Jesus and the church are one flesh. All right, one flesh. There's no way we can divorce Jesus from his church and then just have this side relationship with him. That doesn't exist. Right? Like trying to get Jesus to be disconnected from his church is like, like someone who's friends with uh, this man who's married to a wife, but he despises the wife. All right, that man is going to choose his wife. He, in fact, already has, right, when he's made the vows at the altar, right? Like, if you're the friend of this man who loves his wife and you hate his wife, the guy's already chosen, all right? Like, there's no way you can have this side relationship and despise the very person that he loves. Jesus loves his church, and he wants us to love his church, too, that is to love the people in the church. He wants us to desire to see them grow and thrive and mature as followers of Jesus. One of the interesting things is often when we try to find God elsewhere outside of church, we often are diminished in our pursuit of Jesus. We often would spend less time in his word. We would often spend less time in prayer, and we'd go for much longer seasons of our lives doing our own thing, living our lives our own way. I know this from experience, right? But, but what's interesting is having less of the Bible in our lives is in a way, one way, an area of our lives in which we're actually in common agreement with the enemy. Jesus said this in the four seed parable in Luke 8 verse 12. He says, the ones along the path, the seeds that are cast along the path are, right, those who have, have heard and the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. That whenever we as individuals choose to have less of the scriptures in our lives, it's an area in our lives in which not that we are like intentionally agreeing with the enemy, but we're making choices that are in line with his plans, right? That the enemy desires less of the word because the word produces in us faith, belief, trust in God. It points us to reality as it is and makes us uh, immune, so to speak, to deception, And the enemy's tactic is to have less of the word so that we might not believe and be saved. It turns out people who walk away, 28% of them make the statement saying, I I can teach myself what I need to know. 28% say, I can teach myself what I need to know. And for sure, some of what we need to know, we can be self-taught. 
All right? We are all responsible for our own growth, that we are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We are to draw near to God, and he draws near to us, right? We are accountable to building ourselves up in our most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, that we are to stir up the gift inside of us that we've received by the laying on of hands, is what Paul says to Timothy, right? That we are accountable for our own growth in many ways, okay? And we can teach ourselves right, led by the Holy Spirit, pursuing the Word of God in many ways, what we might need to know. But what's interesting is that we still would have a need for one another. In Hebrews 3 verse 12, the author writes, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you, right, an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Verse 13, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you, right, talking to brothers, family language, none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What this suggests is that if we were to try to live independently of the family of believers, that we would be likely to fall prey to the deceitfulness of sin. And notice this is not saying the sin of deceitfulness, right, the desire to perhaps slander or flatter or bear false witness or, right, whatever, right? It's not talking about that particular sin. It's talking about the deceitfulness of all sin. The one who's being deceived by sin is the person committing the sin, where in that moment of their life, they're believing something less than true and making a choice that is less than good or glorious for God, right? Less good for themselves, that we are susceptible, all of us, the family of God, are susceptible to having our hearts hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That when we study the scriptures on our own, we, we may be more likely to study only the parts that we, we like, right? We might be looking at only the things that are affirming of ourselves, right? We may think, hey, I don't, I don't need exhortation and encouragement from other people, like, I'm, I'm fine, I don't need these things, but I want to point out every heart surgeon who needs his heart to be uh, worked on doesn't do it himself, right? Like you can't perform your own heart surgery, right? Even if you're having something simpler, a heart attack, you might not even be able to drive yourself to the hospital. You need someone else. And the scriptures that we read, right, are pointing to the fact that all of us have this potential, And you might be like, but no, but Brian, I'm in a season in my life where I am pursuing God with my whole heart. I am loving the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I don't think I need the encouragement or the challenge from other people. But what's interesting is this passage actually doesn't command your reception of those exhortations. It commands you giving exhortation to your brothers and sisters. It's it's about how are you encouraging the life and growth in another person. And I'd want to suggest, if you're going to try to live a life apart from the church family, how are you obeying the Scripture if you're not spending time with your brothers and sisters to know them well enough to to lift them up in prayer, to encourage them, and even sometimes challenge them in this way? Right? How, How do you obey the Scripture to say, exhort one another every day as long as it's called today? that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You need to be a part of the family of God. 
Also, beyond that, even though we can teach ourselves some of what is truth, we still need teachers. And this might sound self-serving, but even if I was to ignore this passage and never preach on it, it wouldn't be less true. All right? And there would come a day in my life when I'm no longer pastoring a church, and this verse, these, these passages are still true. And so, as a good teacher, I'm going to still teach this to you, even though it might sound self-serving, okay? Uh, and even if my motives were wrong, God is still true. <laughs> so here we go. Mark 6, verse 34. What's interesting is Jesus uh, loved people, right? We, we often don't question that. Jesus was moved with compassion. He desired to care and serve people. When, when he was moved with compassion for the crowds, he would heal the sick or raise the dead, right, or cast out demons. But that's not the only thing he did when he was moved with compassion. In Mark 6, verse 34, it says, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And what was his solution? He began to teach them many things. Jesus realizes that we as humans, apart from the teaching of scripture, are like sheep without a shepherd, that we are going to have the tendency to stray, to get lost, to get wounded, to get injured, right, to, to wander from our Father. And sometimes the solution is to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to cast out demons, but other times the solution, we can avoid a whole lot of difficulty and suffering in our lives if we would uh, yield ourselves to the Word of God, right? What we need in those moments is more teaching from the Scriptures, Right? And he does this because he loves us, because he has compassion for us. And Jesus, I want to suggest, gave us, all of us, right? not just me right? or you, right? but he gave us all teachers because of this risk, because he loves us. In Ephesians 4, verse 11, Paul writing, he, he describes this. He says, and he, that is Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. He gave them as gifts for the sake of, to, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. All right, for the building up of the body of Christ. That you and I, we need the church family. We need each other in order for us to live a life equipped for the good works that he's called us to do. Right? It, without the church family, we cannot do the very things that God has us on this planet for. Right? Like if we're just going to choose to live for ourselves, Paul says in 1 Timothy 5 that, that the person who is self-indulgent is already dead while they live. Like what, what, are, you, what are you doing right? if you're only going to live for yourself? Right? And that part of the purpose is that we'd be equipped for ministry and that we would be built up as the body of Christ. And what's interesting, verse 13, it says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, right? That the reason that Jesus does this is because he wants us to grow up. And this passage will get even more offensive, but it's basically saying he wants us to grow up. And this is going to continue to be his plan until we are walking in unity, that we're walking in fuller knowledge of who Jesus is, that we're walking in maturity, in, in the fullness of Christ. Verse 14, so that we we're all susceptible to this, may no longer be children. That one of the reasons God has a church family to equip us is because we're, we are childish otherwise. Tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every 
wind of doctrine by human cunning, craftiness, and deceitful schemes. Right? This is the risk. If we are only ever self-taught, if we're never held accountable by other people, being you know, taught by the scriptures from other people, myself included, we have the tendency to just go after the, and pursue the things that are pleasing to us. We'll raise up teachers for ourselves that will tickle our ears and tell us the things that we want to hear and won't challenge us and equip us for every good work. That Jesus gives us the church family so that we could be equipped, so that we could mature, that we could grow up and that we wouldn't be childish. What's interesting is we could not say that we believe the Scriptures and simultaneously say that we don't need to be a part of the church family. It's impossible to say that. That's a mutually exclusive claim. It can't happen. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 12. I think I'm doing okay for time. Here we are. For just... As the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews, Greeks, slaves, or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Verse 14, for the body does not consist of one member, but many. There's, there's no such thing as a, a, as a church family of one person. It doesn't exist. He says, verse 15, if the foot should say, and notice this is a matter of, once again, self-perception, a matter of what the foot deems as relevant and as meaningful and as accurate when it may not be reality. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And so notice the foot is saying something, believing it to be true, but yet it isn't, no matter how many times the foot says it. It's not suddenly going to change the truth. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And so once again, this is a matter of perceptions of reality and what is actually true. That there will be times in which we as individuals may not feel like we belong in the family of God. But that's a lie, and it's not true. And no matter how much we might think it, no matter how much we might believe it or say it, it doesn't make it true. We all belong in the family of God. The LifeWay research study from last year said this when it interviewed young adults between the ages of 23 and 30, they found the following. 29% no longer feel connected to the people in the church. But once again, those feelings are real. Paul points out there will be times in which the foot feels like they do not belong, and it's a lie. It's not as though this is some unexpected thing that the Bible did not predict that we would experience, that we feel disconnected, that we feel like we don't belong, that we feel so different than perhaps the church family that God's placed us in, like, God, there aren't people there like me. Like, why do you have me here? Why, why do I even bother to be a part of it? I don't feel connected to these people. And even though we feel, believe, say, and think all of that, it is not true. It is a lie to believe that you don't belong in the family of God. You are needed and necessary. You are called by God to be a part of his kingdom, to be a part of his body. And you may feel like a misfit at times, but it is not reality. It is not true. 
But what's crazy is this passage doesn't say that they believe they don't belong in the body. This passage says they believe they don't belong to the body. That when you and I become followers of Jesus, we're no longer our own. We've been ransomed. We've been bought with a price. We are not our own, is what Paul says, I think, 1 Corinthians, what, 6 and 7. We don't belong to ourselves. We belong to Jesus in every way. But here, this passage is suggesting that not only do we belong to Jesus, but we belong to the body of believers. I want to suggest it's not a matter of just belonging in the family of God, but you belong to the family of God. And I know that sounds like a little bit like, what what do you mean? Like, I'm my own. But no, no, you belong to the family of God. And when we choose to disconnect ourselves, I want to point out that others who are loved by Jesus, they deserve to have your fellowship, to enjoy your encouragement, to experience your giftings, to be built up by you and your faith, right? You belong to the body. I belong to the body. I don't get to choose to hoard the gifts that God has given me to myself. I belong to all of you. And Jesus has made that the case. And even when we believe otherwise, it does not make us any less a part of the body. It's not a legitimate reason, a justification to disconnect from the family that God has placed and called you to. Verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. Right? God arranged, God placed, God chose. And there might be different seasons of your life where you live in different areas or you go to different churches. And I hope that while you're here that we equip you for the things that God has called you to. That when you travel, when you go, that you're ready for the life and mission, the purpose for which God has made you. But I want to point out that God was not fickle. He didn't just be like, oh, no, that's good enough. I'll just have him go there. Like, no, no, no. God has thought about this. God has chosen for you to be a part of his family, and he has placed you there with a purpose. He's not winging it. Verse 19, if all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Now here's another matter of perception. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that that seem to be weaker, are indispensable. So once again, this is a matter of perception. Why does the church seem irrelevant to me? This isn't a surprise. This is something that the Bible teaches us, that you and I will at times feel that way. We will at times feel as though there are even members of the body that are dispensable in our perception. And that's a lie to say that about any other follower of Jesus. That we might, in our minds, perceive them to be weaker and unnecessary and irrelevant to our growth in our lives, but you need them, right? The person you would think is the least significant Christian in your life is someone that you need, right? We can't say this and have it be truth. Verse 23, and on those parts of the body, now he's talking about our physical bodies, the parts of the body that we, once again, think less honorable, we bestow 
the greater honor and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. So once again, this is all about perception. What we would say, what we seem to perceive, right? What we think, right, is less honorable actually are honorable in the eyes of God, are necessary and needed and relevant to our growth in our life. Verse 24, which are more presentable parts do not require, the modesty part there, okay? But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, what's interesting is, right, these quotes, the person saying, I can teach myself what I need. But that's a very self-centered way to live as a Christian. It's not always about our own needs. The thing that Jesus does in our hearts, in our lives, is he transforms us that because of his love, we now love him in return. And because of his love, we now love one another. It's not just about our own needs, that he's given us a care for one another, that when one member suffers, we all suffer. We have this way of no longer being so self-centered that we have this way of no longer looking only at our own needs and wants, but we begin to look towards the needs of others. And when one member rejoices, we all rejoice with them. There's a way that in the life of a Christian that God is able to prune away jealousy and envy, and when someone else's life is going well, even when you're in a season of struggle, you can still authentically rejoice with them because God has changed your heart. What's crazy is Paul is writing this to likely the most broken and screwed up church in the New Testament. Right? Paul is writing this to the people where like they could legitimately say, this place is so screwed up, these sinners are so just messed up, the church is not addressing the things that it should. And they easily could have been, you know, Paul could have written like, hey, you know what, like I wouldn't go to that church either. But no, that's not what he says. He says, you're a part of this body. And he addresses the concerns in that church. He's investing and nourishing that church just as Jesus does. And he loves them. I am running out of time. Here we go. All right. Let's, uh, if you could, Wes, skip down to the part about the rituals of the church. Here we are. 12% of people interviewed say that the rituals of the church are empty. Right? They're saying, this is irrelevant to me because like, it, it's like you just show up, what, you get some bread once in a while? Like, this isn't doing anything for me. But I want to point out that that's, once again, an inaccurate perception of reality. Now, if, if the church is held and strangled by the traditions of men being presented by, as the Word of God, then that's a problem. But I want to point out the rituals that Jesus gave us are ones that continue and remain to this day for a reason. They continue and remain to the end of the age. He's given us two, right? Jesus commanded us to baptize. Matthew 28, verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. It sounds as though when Jesus gave that instruction for baptism, that he's like, hey, I might not be back for a while, but I'm still present with you in my spirit, and this sounds like it's going to remain 
until the end of the age. It's still a relevant thing. It's something that we do and participate in with meaning and value. Okay? And then the other is that he gave us communion, which communion represents not only our relationship to God, but also to one another, that we have this family that he's given us. And Paul summarizes it this way in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. He says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Making it sound as though that ritual is something that we will continue to practice until Jesus returns in his glory and with his kingdom. Right? These are still relevant things in the mind and eyes of God. And we're going to have communion in a minute. But there's one more thing that I want us to consider. We are called to be examples to the believers. That when some of us are strong, we are to bear with the struggles and the failings of the weak. And when we are weak, God has called and equipped others around us to be able to lift us up, challenge us at times, pray for us, encourage us, right? Invest in us, comfort us, weep with us, right? That, that he is calling us to do that. And it, it, it takes a lot of work for God to change a selfish heart like mine to be to the point where I actually care about other people. But the people that I probably care about the most are my, my family, right? More innately, like just, that's just the way it is for us biologically. But what's interesting is there are predictors of spiritual health of, of children um, that have been studied. Uh, I think this is a book from, what was it, 2018? Uh, Nothing Less, Engaging Our Kids in a Lifetime of Faith. Right? And through this sermon series, we've been looking at some of the reasons why people leave the church. And that should be a little bit of a scary thing for us, for our own community, for our own children, right? for our own grandchildren. That should be concerning to us. But there's also research that's been done about like, hey, what about the kids that remain? What's unique or distinct about those situations? What, what is an indicator, right? What evidence was there that resulted possibly in that outcome? And I've got some of these sheets that uh, George will pass out in a second, and I've got them listed up on the screen as well. And so they found that the predictors of spiritual health for young adults are thus, that as a child, they regularly read the Bible while growing up. As a child, they regularly spent time in prayer while growing up. The child regularly served in church while growing up. The child listened primarily to Christian music, and the child participated in church mission trips or projects. That for the individual, that when they were an adult, that they remained in the faith, those are some of the common features of those individuals that were surveyed. It doesn't guarantee the outcome, but it causes us to be mindful. And now the bigger challenge that hits my heart is the things that were present in the lives of the parents of these children that remain in the faith. In addition, they found that parents who had successfully passed their faith on to their children typically were involved in the following activities and get ready to like, be like, oh my goodness, like I'm failing miserably, right? Okay, here we go. They were reading the Bible several times a week. They were taking part in a service project or church mission trip as a family. They were sharing their faith with unbelievers. They were encouraging teenagers to serve in the church. They were asking forgiveness when they messed up as parents. They were encouraging their children's unique talents and interests. 
They were taking annual family vacations, which that one seems more spurious to me, but I think it just points out, like, you've got to love your kid. You don't want to just merely have them like, I want you to be a disciple of Jesus. I just never want to see you, right? Like, no, no, no. You've got to be invested and love your children, all right? They were attending churches with teaching that emphasized what the Bible says, and they were even teaching their children to tithe. And so, when I read these things and I'm like, oh my goodness, like I, this stirs me up to be like, I need to be more intentional about these things because I want to love my kids well and I want them to know and love Jesus. But don't merely be a follower of Jesus for the sake of your kids, right? Do it for the sake of what Jesus has done for you. Do it for the sake of your relationship with the Lord. Do it for the sake of, of you knowing and enjoying and experiencing the life and blessing that God has for you. And as a result, your children, your grandchildren will see that and you'll be better equipped to, in humility, acknowledge your own faults and failures, but also to point them to the God that made them and the God that loves them. And so, we love God because he first loved us. We love others because he first loved us, right? Like, this is what he's done for us. And so, we're going to take communion this morning. We'll just do one more song. And just think about what Jesus has done for us, the community that we have with him, with every believer that has passed on into eternity, the community that we have with one another. And wherever God might call you to be in the future, I pray that in this season we might be faithful to equipping and stirring each other up towards love and good works, that we would be faithful to the good works that God's called us to now in our community, in our valley, that we would be a radiant church, members of his body, being sanctified, becoming more and more like him, maturing in the faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your body that was broken, your blood that was shed, that you deemed us, even though we were rebels, even though we were sinners, Lord, even though we were your enemies, you, you deemed us worthy of dying for, of shedding your blood, of giving your life, of laying it down because you considered us to be worthy. Even though I would argue, Lord, we, we weren't. Lord, it seems like you might have inaccurately measured our value or the relevance of, of who we were as individuals, but nonetheless, because of your great love, you did that. And because of your great love, you transform us. And I pray, Lord, that as we take communion today, we would recognize with what seriousness uh, is before us that, that, Lord, you broke your body, you shed your blood for us, that we could be forgiven, that we could be united with you. And I pray that you would transform our hearts, not looking out only for ourselves and our own good, but we would be mindful and humble in our service and love towards others. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.